Um, so imagine that, uh, imagine an orphan, uh, a, a young person, a child who's been in the system for years and maybe ended up in some kind of institutional setting. And, uh, and like, like everyone who's uh, absent a family, uh, this, this child has prayed that, God, somehow, would you place me in a family? And day after day passes, month after month, and year after year. And, and finally, this news comes uh, to this orphan boy. Hey, a family is adopting you. You have a family now. And so he packs his few belongings into a little bag and is sitting on the porch waiting for his family to arrive. And the natural question that would have been on his mind, we all know that question, it would be, what kind of family is this going to be, right? And so as we, as we come to Romans 4 today, Paul is, is describing what kind of family you got adopted into when you gave your life to Jesus. When, if you know Jesus, that means you now have a right relationship with God. Uh, your relationship with God has gone from being one of enmity to being one of peace, but it also means you have a relationship with the people of God. You've been brought into a family, and so he's going to explore what kind of family is that, okay? And so there's some threads that Paul has been holding, several threads all the way through Romans, um, and, and one of those threads has been, is God righteous? Another way to say that is, is God who he says he is? Is God faithful? Can God be trusted? And that's our fundamental question as humans is, can I trust God? Is God trustworthy? Does God do what he says? Or is God a commitment breaker and a covenant breaker like the rest of us are? Okay, And so Paul has traced through that God is faithful, God is righteous, God is who he says he is. And if we doubt that, the evidence we can look to is we can look to the cross of Jesus Christ where Jesus uh, lives the life that we should have lived and didn't, dies the death that we deserved to die, and now he's risen from the dead and he rules and reigns as Lord of the universe. We know that God is faithful. We know that God is righteous. Paul is traced out here because we look at Jesus and the lengths that he's willing to be to go to to be faithful to God. Uh, he is uh, faithful all the way to the cross. Now, another question Paul's been asking is, what's humanity's core problem? Like, what is up with us really? What's really our deal? And the, the answer to that is that sin is far more pervasive and persistent than we realize. Sin is more sinful than we realize. Sin is our problem. We have become slaves to sin because we exchange worship of God for worship of little g-gods. We worship things that are not God, and that twisted worship has led to twisted hearts and twisted lives. And so our solution to that problem is it's not that we need more self-esteem. It's not that we need some personality um, uh, adjustments. It's not, it's not that we need to think more positively, although all of those things are fine. All those things are good. But our, our, so the solution is that our heart, uh, which has become de deceived and deceitful, has to become transformed, and, and we've got to receive a new heart. Uh, how can that happen? This is the other thread. How can I be made right with God? Well, again, what Paul's traced through Romans 1 through 3 is that we can be made right with God uh, through placing our trust in who Jesus is, and what Jesus has done on our behalf. And when we trust Jesus, what happens is this uh, gospel word called justification. God says, you're right with me. You have a right relationship with me, and you're part of my covenant people. You're part of my family. And so that brings us to the last question, what kind of family is that? If, if you ask people who've had uh, uh, maybe been in church a while and ask what kind of family is church, you might get some interesting answers, Right? You might get some really, that's like asking, you know, how's McDonald's? Well, it depends on the one you went to last, right? I mean, so like, like how is, uh, what kind of family is this? Um, well, 
your answer to that may vary. But, but what we're going to talk about today is, 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 is who does Jesus say we are and what kind of family has he created us to be? What kind of family did you join when you joined the family of God? And so Paul, another thread that Paul's been holding on to all through this is he's laid the foundation that um, the gospel... Uh, isn't this new plan that God came up with because the old plan didn't work. He didn't start with Abram and say, oh man, this is going nowhere. Let me do something totally new. Uh, God didn't break his covenant with Abram. God's not a covenant breaker. He's not a commitment breaker. Um, The gospel is where the original plan always was pointing. From the moment God called Abram and said, I'm going to make a family out of you and and you're going to be more numerous than the stars of the sky and the sand on the sea and all that. And you, all the nations are going to be blessed. That was always pointing to Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of what the plan was always meant to be. And when Jesus stood before his disciples after dying and raising and before he ascended into heaven to rule as Lord of the universe, and he said, go into all the world and make disciples. That was fulfillment of the original commission that was given to Abram all those years before. There's this gospel is the fulfillment of God's plan. It's the fulfillment of his covenant. All right, and so the words we've looked at so far, week one was gospel, this good news that Jesus is who he says he is. He died, uh, he lived the life that we couldn't live, died the death we deserved to to, to die, and he rules and reigns now. Uh, The the second word from Romans 2 was judgment, that because God loves you, um, judgment isn't a bad word, it's it's good news, and he refuses to leave you at the mercy of sin. He refuses to leave this world slaves to sin. The, the, The word last week was righteous, where God is who he says he is, and he can be counted on, and we see that through the cross of Jesus Christ, and our, and our, our word today is faith. If we, once we come to understand that God is trustworthy, then the right response, the sane response, the, the, the realistic response, the reasonable response is to trust him. And so once we see the righteousness of God manifested in the cross, then the, the right response to that is faith. And as we talk about faith today, we want to talk about uh, what true saving biblical faith is, Versus maybe what counterfeit faith might be. Faith is a really popular word in our culture. Everybody has faith. We, everybody has faith in something, and, and we're all about just believing your dreams and think positively, and things are going to come true. But what is actual saving faith? And so there's an openness in our culture to talking about faith, and that's a really good thing. Um, and so when you talk to, remember we've been challenging you every week the past few weeks. Who is your one? Who is that one person that you're praying for? To, to, to grow closer to Christ, to come to know Christ? Who's that person that you're having coffee with, that you're encouraging, that you're sharing the gospel with? And when they say, yeah, I have faith, or when they say, I have, I'm really spiritual, or yeah, I love Jesus, then the follow-up question you can ask is, well, tell me about when did you start following Jesus? See, that's a very specific question. Uh, tell me, when, when did you trust Jesus uh, to rescue you from sin? And that, that gets specific. And we're going to talk towards the end here about what is real faith, what's counterfeit cultural faith. But the, the point we want to walk out of here with today is that by faith, you can receive a new life and a new family. By faith, you can receive a new life and a new family. Faith, yes, gets you right with God. And that's what our tradition, our church tradition, is really focused on. Trust Jesus, get your vertical relationship right. But the, the, the main thrust of Paul's argument here in Romans 3 and 4 is that if, if we get made right with God, that puts us into a new family and we have a transformed relationship with the people of God. And so what kind of family is God's family? The first thing I'd like for us to see from Romans 4 is that God's family is a family where grace wins. God's family 
as a family where grace wins. Uh, Romans 4.1. What shall we say was gained by Abram, our forefather, according to the flesh? Now, this is a difficult verse to translate. Paul might be saying, uh, you know, what did Abram gain through his fleshly works? Or he might be saying, have we found Abram to be our father according to the flesh? In other words, or is, is Abram's only family the people that can look him up on genealogy.com and say, hey, yeah, there's, there's Abram, I'm kin to him, I'm saved. Uh, but, but the main argument that Paul's setting up here is that there's these two fundamental ways that we relate to God. One type of way of relating to God is a, a way rooted in merit and deserving. Uh, God, I deserve X, Y, Z. Another way to relate to God is through grace and viewing our relationship with God as a gift, all right? And so Paul says in verse 2, If Abram was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Always a good question to ask, by the way. What does the Scripture say? You know, when, we're, when you're facing a, a, a dilemma or a decision, really helpful. Instead of, oh, I think, no, what does God's Word say? Paul models this really beautifully for us here. What's the Scripture say? Abram trusted God, believed God, had faith in God, placed his confidence in God, and it was reckoned to him or counted to him as righteousness. And he's quoting Genesis 15, verse 6, and Paul has his whole Abram story in mind here. And and we're going to unpack that a little bit in a moment. Verse 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes, uh, is counted as a gift. That word gift is the word for grace, as a graced gift. Uh, not, uh, 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 sorry, let me just start over. Verse 4, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. To the one who does not work, but believes, and whom it justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted or reckoned to him as righteousness. All right? And so the, the family of God is a family where grace wins. I pastored a, a, a country church, small country church called Cottonwood Baptist Church. I was youth pastor there for a couple years, pastor there for eight years there, 10 years all together. Uh, and, and Jenny and Angela are here. Uh, surprises uh, uh, today, being here this morning. Everybody look at Jenny and Angela. Uh, but uh, known them for years and years. Son and I got to pastor and shepherd them. Uh, learned a lot. We all grew up together out there at Cottonwood. But there's a song in the greeting time at Cottonwood every Sunday. I don't know if it's still the case, but every, you sing uh, while you shake hands. Everybody sings, I'm so glad I'm the part of the family of God. We know that song? I'm a part of the family of God. And I've heard this song for years, but all I ever heard was the chorus. And there's this verse that says, from the door of an orphanage to the house of the king, no longer an outcast, a new song I sing, from rags to riches, from weak to the strong. I'm not worthy to be here, but praise God, I belong. And that's what it means to be part of God's family. That's what kind of family God's, God, God's family is, is it's not about who deserves to be there. It's not about who's worthy or deserving in whoever's eyes. It's, it's this, this idea of, I, I, I'm not entitled to this. I don't deserve this. But praise God, I have found a place to belong. God's family is a family where grace wins. And so that's one of the first things that Abram, that, 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 uh, Paul says about Abraham's faith and Abraham's family, the family of God, is that membership in this family is not reserved for the deserving. If it were, God would be sitting at a table somewhere all by himself. It's not about who's deserving. So one of my favorite superhero movies is Wonder Woman. Even though it's 
DC, not Marvel. I love, I love one of the greatest superhero movies ever made. And it it's really has all these echoes of the gospel, just like every great story does. And you've got this unlikely deliverer in um, Diana. You've got gospel, good news of this unlikely deliverer. You've got judgment. Diana, the fierce warrior, um, uh, it becomes the, the, the defender and the judge on behalf of the weak. And, and you've got righteousness. She's who she says she is and does what she says she'll do. And then you've got this moment towards the end where this villain Ares is telling her, don't have compassion on humanity. They don't deserve your compassion. Anybody remember what she says? She looks in the camera with those smoldering eyes and she says, it's not about deserve. It's not about deserve. And somehow though, the people who've had this incredible uh, outpouring of God's grace, we so easily make it about who deserves what. And we slip into a relationship with God where it's about what I deserve versus the gift of grace. There was a Baptist minister a few years ago. There was a president involved in a scandal and a Baptist minister was on the record of saying, don't you know that man does not deserve forgiveness? Whoa. Paul quotes Genesis fifteen six. Abram believed God. And it was credited to him, counted to him, reckoned to him as righteousness. He's going to go on to say that before the law came, this was before the law, this was before circumcision, this was before any of those works, all Abram did was just took God at his word. And God said, you're right with me, and you're part of my people just because you trusted me. And that word reckon or counted, it was reckoned to him. You know, that just sounds like, reckon sounds like something like country people say, right? I reckon, well, it's a, an accounting term. It was counted to him or it was reckoned to him. That's like if uh, my daughter Addie, she has about 20 bucks to her name. And if I said, Addie, I'm going to reckon all of, my, uh, all of my resources, my entire net worth, I'm going to reckon to you. That's going to bring you up to about 2750, okay? Um, <laughs> if I was to reckon what was in my account... To her account. That's what's happening here. Uh, Abram has this deficit in his account. His debt outweighed his, 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 uh, his wealth. And yet, he trusts God and God reckons righteousness to his ledger. And, and Paul contrasts, he says, the one who works doesn't look at what he gets paid as a gift, but as what it's due him. And so, Again, he's talking about these two ways of relating to God. And so you, if you get your paycheck, you probably don't walk into your boss's uh, office and say, thank you so much that you shouldn't have. Like, this is too much. Like, thank you for giving me this. I mean, I just, no, it, you're like, I earned it. He should have given me more. That's what happens when we're having a deserving mentality. But if grandma sends you a handwritten check for your birthday, for $5, hopefully you don't say, well, shh, grandma, come on, I mowed your yard last week, it could have given me more than, no, it's a gift, and you're just thankful for the gift, and it's so easy to get an I deserve mentality with God. How do we know we have an I deserve mentality with God? How do we respond when things don't go our way? So, I was preparing this message when, you know, six members of my household got the stomach bug this last week. And when six people in a house get the stomach bug, it, it's, it's not pretty, okay? It's not pretty. And, and I found myself just like, God, like, why me? <laughs> you know, like, I don't, I don't deserve this. Like, I'm trying to pray. I want to tell the world about you. Like, I, I can't do that if I'm puking everywhere. God, surely there's someone else 
more deserving of this. And, 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 and yet, we go there, don't we? We don't get the promotion. We, we, you know, we, we don't get the, uh, the, the opportunity. We don't get the girl or the guy or whatever. God, where are you? I don't deserve this. That's how we know we've got a relationship with God based on merit. Not based on mercy, not based on grace. And the reality is I deserve hell. That's what I deserve. That's what Paul's established through these first three chapters. So do I relate to God as a gift or through merit? And Paul points to these works like circumcision and the law. It says, man, God counted Abram as righteous before any of that even happened. And that's the way it's always been. We've always been justified by faith. Just like you can, this wedding ring is a beautiful symbol. Um, and Sonda would be really upset if I lost it. But we could have gotten married without this, right? And you can have one of these and not be married. But when you take the faith and you put the symbol with it, that becomes something beautiful, that becomes a covenant. All right, And so, um, faith isn't something that Abram generates and God says, wow, I am so impressed with that faith. I'm going to make you righteous. Oh, even faith is God's gift to us. Remember, like, um, at, at, like the Christmas store at school, which is a way the school like, gets m- money from us all, but we play along, right? But, um, so, maybe you give your kid uh, five bucks or ten bucks, I don't know, one dollar, I don't know how generous you are, but you give your kid some money and they go to the Christmas store and they buy something with your money and then they come back and they give it to you, right? And they're like, see what I bought you with your money? And that's what faith is. God gives it to you. It's a gift. And then we offer it back to him. It's nothing to brag about. Like, look at how much I believe in you. No, he gave you that gift. And all you do is offer it back to him. And so our boasting, Paul's really conscious here that our boasting is in the goodness of God, not even in our ability to have faith. Faith for Paul isn't the shot in the dark. It's the reasonable response to the God who's revealed himself to be trustworthy. The family of God is a family where grace wins. The family of God, second, is a family of forgiven forgivers. Paul goes to David now. He, 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 he's pointed to Abram and David, not accidentally, he hasn't just pulled out two random Old Testament people. Abram is the father of the covenant with Israel. Uh, David, God made a covenant with David that one of his offspring would sit on the throne of the world forever. And, and, and it, Paul knows that Jesus has fulfilled the covenant with Abram and with David. And David says in Psalm 32, verse, here in, in, in Romans verse 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That word blessed can also be translated happy. Happy is the person whose sins are forgiven. And I'm concerned that we have become uh, so overconfident in our own goodness. We overestimate our goodness and we underestimate God's goodness. We overestimate our goodness and we underestimate God's goodness. And we've come to the point where we think, yeah, of course God's going to forgive me. I mean, that's his job. I mean, yeah. And, and it's interesting how entitled we've become in our relationship with God. All the generations right now point to each other and say, you're more entitled. No, you're more entitled. And the reality is, when it comes to God, we've all become entitled. And we've, we've, we've started to think that God somehow owes forgiveness to us. But you know what? Jesus never says to his father, hey, these guys are trying really hard. Let's just, yeah, sin's not a big deal. No. Jesus pays for our sin 
at the greatest personal cost imaginable. He carries our cross and he carries our crown and he experiences rejection from God. Not so that we could just zip, zip around doing whatever we want and expecting God would forgive us, but that so by God's grace we would be transformed. If I have the appropriate understanding of the sinfulness of my sin, man, that, the Holy Spirit will bring grief to my heart. And when I see that God in His mercy, through the faithfulness of Christ, has paid for my sin, the Spirit of God is going to lead me to rejoice. Paul says, quoting David, happy is the person whose sins are forgiven. When we understand, you ever, have you ever been on the verge of really being in trouble? Like, you're going like 90 miles an hour on I-20, and you pass by one of, those, one of our friendly neighborhood troopers, Right? I remember one time I was going about 50 miles an hour down, uh, what street is that, Clint? <laughs> Ale- maybe Neff or Alabama or something. And I'm going fast, you know. Uh, I had a really good reason, but beside the point. And I look over and I see Clint sitting over there and his lights didn't go on. And in that moment when his lights didn't go on, I was just like, thank you, God, you know. <laughs> You know the feeling, you're, you're driving down I-20, you see the trooper, his lights don't go on, you're like, God, I will teach Sunday school if you will just. That's the happiness that we feel when our sins are covered. Anybody that understands the reality of sin and the reality of God's grace, the response is joy. But I think my sin's just no big deal, and mercy is something God owes me. There's going to be no joy in that. And and when I experience what David's describing here, forgiveness, then I become a forgiven forgiver. I can't hate you if God has forgiven me in Christ. So so that doesn't mean we wink at sin. That doesn't mean we say sin's no big deal. No, what we're called to do is expose sin, call sin what it is, bring it out into the light, bring in human consequences if needed. But we pursue forgiveness. We don't require others to meet a standard that we ourselves can't meet. We give up and relinquish the desire to make other people pay. We trust God's vengeance, not our own. Christians are forgiven forgivers. It's what kind of family this is. By faith, we receive a new relationship with God and a new family. Next, it's a family of every tribe, tongue, every nation, every color. Um... Romans 4.15. Let's go to 16. Romans 4.16. That's why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace, be guaranteed to all his offspring, not just the adherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abram, the one who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God uh, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, calls into into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. The speci- See, Abram wasn't like considered righteous, reckoned righteous, just because he vaguely believed there was a God out there somewhere who wanted some vague good things for him. He believed that this God revealed to him, the God, uh, the God called Yahweh, this, this God that appeared to him, made this very specific promise, I'm going to make a family out of you, and he trusted the specific God's specific promise, and God reckoned that to him as righteousness. And the promise that Abram believed was that God was going to make this multi-ethnic, multi-racial family out of his offspring. 
And there's some people that think they're Christians that would be really, really, really uncomfortable in heaven because they hate their brother or sister who looks different than them. So diversity is a really popular value in our culture today. And it, if we start pursuing diversity just because it's cool, we're going we're gonna to totally miss the boat. But we pursue diversity because it's biblical. Um, Romans, or excuse me, Revelation 7 depicts heaven, and it says there's this worship scene, and every tribe, tongue, and nation is gathered around the throne of God, worshiping him. The family of the faith of Abram doesn't clump together based on who voted for who, or who has this much money in their bank account, or who's this ethnic identity, or who thinks Dr. Pepper is superior to Dr. Thunder. That's not how we, I mean, we all know the answer to one of those, but the whole thrust of Paul's argument is that there's this new family. If we pursue diversity for diversity's sake, we're going to fail, but if we pursue Jesus, diversity will happen because that's who he is. If we follow Jesus, where he's going is every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so this needs to be a reflection of that. It's a big part of what got Jesus crucified, by the way. Samaritans? What? A diverse family. Finally, a family whose badge is faith. You know, some families, it's like maybe alcoholism runs in the family, or some families have big ears, or some families, you know, really great with money, some families not so great with money. The distinguishing characteristic of the family of God is faith. That's the badge. Um, this idea that I trust God is who he says he is. Let's read um, beginning in verse 18. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so will your offspring bring. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. He was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's a great definition of faith, by the way. Abram was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. It wasn't that Abram was fully convinced that God would do whatever Abram wanted God to do. It was that God was able to do everything God promised to do. That's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So what is faith? Um, faith, and we've probably all seen an example like this before, but faith is, um, is in a sense, it's a sense. It's acknowledging this is a stool. It's brown, it has four legs, that's what this is. And so... Christian faith is, in a sense, it's, I acknowledge Jesus is the Son of God. Like, he died on the cross for my sin. He rose, he, he rose from the dead. He rules and reigns. But at a certain point, like, I've, I get up on this stool, and it goes from being a sense to being trust. The weight of my life is now resting on this stool. And, and some of us, man, we, we agree with all the facts of the story. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, has the weight of my life come to rest on the gospel? Um, is, 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 is my confidence in the gospel or somewhere else? So let's talk about a couple of things that faith is and is not. And then we're going we're gonna to get out of here. 
First of all, we see in Abram's faith a reorientation away from himself and back towards God. Paul laid out in Romans 1 that our whole problem was that we took our eyes off of God and we put our eyes on ourselves. And so faith is when we, in God, saving faith is when we take our eyes off of ourselves and put our eyes back on Jesus. Uh, saving faith is not generic. It's not just, I think there's a God out there and he's going to do something really cool. And I think, you know, I just, man, I just want to roll with that. I mean, that's fine. That is a faith. But that's not saving faith. Saving faith, according to Paul here, is shaped by the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. I believe that Jesus died, Jesus rose. Jesus rules. Saving faith uh, takes form in what Paul's going to write in Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, right? That God, that Jesus died and God raised him from the dead. Saving faith is not just feelings and it's not just positive thinking. So our Porch Live leadership team, we, we saw a great message Tuesday from Dave Marvin and, 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 he, and, he, and he contrasted biblical faith with um, good vibes. You know, we're familiar with like on, on social media, we all send good vibes people's way. And we only want good vibes only, right? Faith, I mean, there's, good vibes are great. Nothing wrong with good vibes, but that's not saving faith. Saving faith isn't just thinking positive. Thinking positive is great, but that's not saving faith. Saving faith is trusting God at his word, whatever we feel like. Faith isn't something that we stir up. You feel like you ever got to have a pep rally and just get more faith, get more faith, get more faith. Woo! And then what happens tomorrow? You don't maybe need more faith. Maybe you need to put the faith you have in the right person. Jesus said, all it takes is a mustard seed, right? If all you have is a mustard seed, it's enough if it's in the right person. Elijah and the prophets of Baal in the Old Testament's a great story. And all those prophets of Baal, the false prophets, they had tons of faith. All of them put together, they had tons of faith. They were cutting themselves and they were screaming and dancing and having a great time and it looked incredible. But it was in the wrong person. So nothing happened. And Elijah took his little bit of faith and he put it in God and something miraculous happened. Tim Keller puts it this way. It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is totally infer fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. If, you see, if you're hanging from a cliff and you see a branch, it doesn't matter if you have a little bit of faith or a lot of faith. What matters is, can that branch hold you? And we came in here today, and some of us are trying to hang our lives on the branches of success or relationships with people or money, or approval, and none of those branches can support your life. But you take just a little bit, no matter how much faith you put in them, no matter how many positive vibes you send, but if you take a little bit of mustard seed faith and you entrust it to Jesus, it's enough. Saving faith doesn't mean that everything is going to go your way. It doesn't mean you're going to get the promotion. It doesn't mean you're going to get healed. It means that no matter what happens, Jesus is with you and Jesus is enough and Christ is being formed in you. Now, I hope you get healed and I hope you get the promotion and I'm going to pray with you on that. But saving faith looks like uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They said, man, I know God can deliver us from the fire. I really hope he does. But even if he doesn't, we're going to trust him.
Saving faith doesn't mean you won't have trouble. Can we say that again? Jesus, in fact, said, in the world you will have trouble. Look at Jesus. He's the most faithful person who's ever lived, and he died on a cross, and nobody was there but his mama and his aunt and his cousin and Mary Magdalene. Faith may mean you will have trouble. It doesn't mean all your dreams will come true. It means Jesus is enough. Saving faith is not the absence of doubt. Abram didn't waver. Well, we, we, Paul says, but well, we, we know the story. Paul knows the story. Abram said, hey, she's not my wife. She's my sister. Abram tried to have children with his, with his wife's maid. Abram, there were times that he wavered. But when Paul says he didn't waver, he means he didn't stay in doubt. And you may feel like you're a terrible Christian because there's times you lay in bed and say, what if this whole thing's a joke? Like, what if it's made up? There are times you're going to doubt. But you don't have to stay in doubt. Doubt doesn't have to have the last word. There's times you, you may doubt, is God for me? Is God good? You're going to doubt those things. But faith means you don't stay in doubt. Doubt doesn't define you. Kind of like courage doesn't mean you're not afraid. Courage means you do it anyway. Faith doesn't mean all your doubts are gone. But even with the doubt gnawing at you, you trust God. Finally, saving faith is lived out in community. People will hinder you. But people will heal you. God uses people to heal you. And God's design is that saving faith is lived out in community. As the band comes up, I want you to hear one last thing. And that's that the best evidence of saving faith is a surrendered life. The best evidence of saving faith is a life that is surrendered to God. So I want you to ask yourself in these last couple of moments, ask an honest question. Has there been a time in my life We don't do the invitation like this every week, but today we're going to. Has there ever been a time in my life when I surrendered to God? I'm not talking about has there been a time that I thought heaven looks better than hell. Anybody knows that. Has there been a time in my life when I surrendered to God? Has there been a time in my life that I placed my trust in Jesus? said, Jesus, save me. Forgive me. Do you know the joy of having your sin forgiven.